Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And let me just begin by reading our, our text. Uh, we're going to cover the first ten verses today, and then we'll, Lord willing, finish up this chapter next Sunday. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, uh, verse 1, Solomon continues here. Uh, For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life with which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. As we've seen over the past several months, Ecclesiastes, we might say, is is soberly wise uh, for a number of reasons. For starters, it is soberly wise because it completely dismantles the notion that we can find anything satisfying in this life apart from faith in God. Solomon has said more than once, life is vanity, it is meaningless under the sun, there is no substance to it. Life is brief, it is, it is fleeting, it is temporal, it is transitory, like a, a wisp of, of a uh, vapor or a puff of, of, of steam or smoke or wind. And Solomon reminds us that life lived with only a, a sort of horizontal, who, need God, who needs God perspective will leave us not only empty but feeling empty. Because whenever you take an eternal soul someone that has is, 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 is been hardwired for eternity by the Creator, for His glory, and you put that person in a sin-cursed world, and you limit your search to everything that you can possibly experience or everything that you could possibly gain or, or apprehend or conquer under the sun, you will never, Solomon says, be able to find lasting satisfaction. Ecclesiastes is also soberly wise because it challenges the formulaic thinking that uh, says that A plus B equals C. And the example of this that we've looked at in in chapter 7 is is the idea that if we combine 
God's usual way of blessing the righteous because we go through all the way back to the, the Pentateuch, to the books of Moses, and we work our way through the Old Testament, we see this consistent proverbial principle that God blesses the righteous and He punishes the wicked. He blasts the wicked. And what, what Ecclesiastes has done for us is it's, it's, it's challenged that, that formula thinking that we have sometimes that if we take this, this usual way in which God deals with men, particularly the way in which He typically blesses the righteous, if we combine that concept with our righteous living, right? So we have this principle that we've latched onto that God blesses the righteous. And then we combine, that's A plus B. The B is our, our lives and the, the righteous things that, that we are doing, the, the good things that we're doing, the things that are in compliance with God's, God's will and His word. Then we assume that the outcome is C, and the outcome in our minds is that we, we think that we, we ought to be able to guarantee perpetual blessing. So if, if God blesses the righteous, plus the fact that we are righteous in our minds, <laughs> that should equal perpetual blessing in our lives. But Solomon says that that's not always the case. God doesn't always spare the righteous from adversity. And God doesn't always blast the wicked. Sometimes, and we have this particularly illustrated for us in the book of Job, uh, the righteous suffer. The righteous suffer. The innocent suffer. And, and sometimes we see the opposite. Sometimes we see, and this was the struggle of, of uh, Asaph and other, other writers in the, in the Psalms, was that sometimes God, God seemingly is blessing the wicked, Right? So, and along those lines, we could say Ecclesiastes is, is soberly wise because it confronts the idea that you and I can take these sort of just platitudes from Scripture and apply them to our life and get what we want. So, so it, just, it, it, it just confronts those things. It confronts the, the idea that, that somehow we can find satisfaction apart from God. It challenges the idea that we can live this sort of formula way of living in the Christian life that if we take God's principles and we just do what God says, then we ought to be able to anticipate exactly what God's going to do. We can't do that. And then it keeps us from just sort of jerking, sort of associated with that, just going and grabbing things out of Scripture and just sort of slapping them on our lives and then assuming that, that God will give us what we want as if he's just some sort of a, a cosmic genie or some sort of a, a slot machine. So doesn't, it doesn't happen that way, and it's not supposed to happen that way. Now, we need to be careful that we don't get the wrong impression that, that, that Ecclesiastes is somehow a, a, a negative book, the, the impression that Ecclesiastes is a depressing book. It's not at all. In fact, it's a book that's full of, of hope. It's full of hope because it explains why life is so frustrating to us. Because the bottom line is, people lived their lives this week, and the vast majority of those people on the planet that live their lives are very frustrated. They, they're trying to figure out why they're so frustrated. I mean, they're chasing after this and they're going after that. And, and, and they can look around and even see from an earthly perspective, they've got all these things in their life. And they just keep, all these things just keep coming, and yet they still end up feeling very discontent, very dissatisfied. And so Ecclesiastes is not a pessimistic book at all. It's actually a hopeful book because it pinpoints why life is that way. It helps us to see why we're so frustrated. 
and the, and the, and the, and the reason for that, Solomon has already touched on a number of times, and it's the reality that this world is under the curse of sin. And as he says in, in one verse, God has bent what was straight. And so when sin entered the world, God took the eye beam of the universe and just, he bent it. And, and, and we're foolish to think that we can just, on our own, we can just sort of straighten that back out. So God has done that. That's what Shane's been preaching on. He mentioned it last week. He'll be back in there in Romans 8 again today talking about the groaning of creation, right? That's the frustration that Paul is, Paul is addressing in Romans 8. It's also a book of hope because it tells us how to minimize the frustration of life while looking forward to a time when God will make all things new and will judge the hearts of men. And so it doesn't just tell us why life is so frustrating, but it actually gives us some great wisdom. <laughs> it's saying that even though you and I live in a sin-cursed world, there are some principles that we can apply to our lives that will help to minimize and to, to better deal with this frustration that we experience in life. Now, as we've seen in recent weeks, Solomon has been struggling with a lot of things. Uh, the inequities of life, the the injustice that we experience in life, uh, the fact that the, that the wicked live their lives full of evil, and then when they die, somehow they are praised as if they're the godliest people in town. We talked about that last week. Some guy's in a city, and, he, and, and he's a wicked man, and everybody knows he's a wicked man, but he's going in and out doing his religious duties. And then when he dies, everybody acts like the guy wasn't wicked, and they say all these wonderful things. Solomon is just scratching his head. So that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a frustration. Uh, on the other hand, Solomon is you know, dealing with this issue of the fact that the righteous sometimes die young. So, so, so while the wicked seem to live, in some cases, a long life and seem to prosper, we see in other cases where the righteous are cut down. They're cut down early. Moreover, Solomon has been dealing with our temptation to try to find some way to guarantee uh, that we find what we want in life. Some people are trying, in a sense, some people are trying to get around God and His providence. They're trying to get around it. They're trying to get around God's providence and somehow, some way, secure joy in this life, which Solomon tells us and warns us, when we do that, that produces all kinds of futile and reckless ventures like trying to rebel against the government. <laughs> so it's like you see the government. This was an example that he gave to us. You see the government. You see the way that government abuses its power. You're frustrated at that, but now don't make a foolish decision and go and just try to topple the, the government. That's not the way. In fact, he tells you, obey the king, submit to the king. So when we try to get around God's providence and his sovereignties, we, we end up inventing our own ways, right, of trying to deal with these issues, and it just creates bigger problems. So sometimes we try to rebel against the government. In other cases, we try to aggressively pursue righteousness. Again, we're, we're pursuing righteousness. He says, don't be overly righteous. And he's not saying don't be godly. He's just saying don't pursue righteousness thinking that somehow if you're just godly enough, you'll avoid adversity. Uh, in fact, you might even say if, if you're actually doing that, if you're pursuing righteousness for the purpose of manipulating God and putting him into the corner, that's probably a pseudo-righteousness. That's really not the kind of righteous living that, that the Word of God encourages. Or sometimes we try to break through all the moral boundaries, believing that wickedness will get us what we want. And so rather than being overly righteous, we think, okay, 
enough with the overly righteous stuff. I'm just going to go after wickedness. And Solomon says, up, be careful on that side too. Because if you just ignore the moral boundaries, there is a sowing and reaping principle. And so don't think that that proverbial wisdom, that proverbial, those proverbial, proverbial principles about God judging the wicked. Don't just set those aside because you might do something sinful and God might bring that immediately. And so you're, you're just trying to keep all these, all these uh, principles in, in, in balance. And really what Solomon's doing is here is addressing all of these innate tendencies in the heart of man to search for happiness in spite of what he knows about the providence of God. And, and, and Solomon says when you do that, when, when you try to find happiness in spite of what you know about the sovereignty and the, and the providence of God, you will ruin yourself every time. You will ruin yourself every time. And Solomon has already said that you can't discover what's going to happen, right? You'll, you'll never discover, discover what God is going to do next because God is in charge and to fight against that is, 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 is really folly. He says this, in fact, this is the way he ended the last chapter. You remember in chapter 18, verse 16, he says, When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover, and though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. So what do you do? (laughs) How do you deal with the uncertainty, all of this uncertainty in life? And then what about death? How do you deal with the certainty of death? Because those are sort of these things that keep coming. There's sort of these two tracks that Solomon runs on for, for a few chapters. It's this, all the uncertainties of what's coming. You can't know it. You can't discover it. And yet we're also faced with the certainty that you're going to die. You're going to die. Or to put them together, we'd say this. How can you enjoy uncertain life in light of certain death? How can you and I enjoy uncertain life in light of certain death? Well, if you're going to do that, if you're going to enjoy this uncertain life, then there are some things you you need to do. And Solomon gives three of these to us in our text today. And the first one is this. You must... It's going to sound a little strange, but you must expose karma as a lie. (laughs) You must expose karma as a lie. Now, what do I mean? Well, we all recognize the uncertainty in life. And we all see and experience at times exactly what Solomon observed and what Solomon uh, uh, um, experienced, and that is all of the inequity around us and all the injustice. But sometimes, in order to deal, deal with that, what do we do? We adopt what we might call a Christian form of karma, right? The idea that whatever you do comes back to you. And so if you do something good, then something good will, will happen to you. I mean, I know you guys never get wrapped up in this kind of thinking, but where you, you do something and you just, you have this, you don't say it, but there's this sort of this expectation that if you do the right thing and you, you do it for God and you do it with the right motive, that, that, then something's supposed to happen good back to you, right? That, that's kind of like karma, right, in Hinduism and Buddhism. On the flip side, if you do something bad, then something bad's coming, right? And we do this a lot. How many of you have ever 
something bad happened to you and you immediately went to, you, you, went, you started going back in your recent history. It could, have been, it could have been minutes, it could have been hours or days or weeks, but you were trying to somehow in your mind associate and make a connection between the bad thing that was happening to you and a bad thing that you did recently. You ever done that? My mother helped me with that. Your mother helped you with that. <laughs> That's why we celebrate them once a year. They're a blessing. They're a blessing. <laughs> Thank you, moms. <laughs> Thank you, moms, for helping us make the connection. <laughs> How is that different from sowing and reaping? What is the distinction? The distinction is that I think when it comes to the specificity, how that plays out and when that plays out, and, and even, even why. I mean, the, the, one of the statements that Solomon has already made is nobody's really, nobody's righteous. Just don't forget that. No one is sinless. So when you begin to say, I did a righteous thing, and then now God should do something good back to me, just remember, you may have done a righteous thing, but are you that righteous? Would, would, you, like, would you like for God to put the, the, the heart scan machine on you? And, and we'll see those few righteous things that you did this week, and then we'll see all of the grumbling and the complaining and the deceitfulness and the lust and the, you know what I'm saying? But in, and somehow we, we, I, we zero in on that one thing that we did, and like, I did this godly thing, and now I expect something good in return, and we sometimes just forget depravity, which is what he reminds us of here is the insanity of our hearts. I mean, so at, a, at that level, are we really that righteous? But yet it is amazing that we get... We, we actually think that there's this constant sort of payback system. You do a bad thing, God's after you. You do a good thing, God's going to bless you. And again, it's reinforced. It shouldn't be this way, but it's reinforced sometimes by us in our understanding of proverbial wisdom. So, because we could go back and point to verses and say, but it says in Scripture that God blesses the righteous. So why isn't God doing this thing for me when I did something good for him? Oh, and God blasts the wicked. So why, why is it that, that I can't make that assumption that if I made a bad decision on Tuesday and then I got a flat tire on Wednesday, why can't I make that connection? I did a bad thing and bad, a bad thing happened to me. But I'm saying we do this. And it's just falling into a, a, a secular humanistic way of thinking to, to, get to, that where it, to get down to that point in our Christian lives where we're trying to... It, again, it doesn't remove the principle, but it's about how does that play out in... Is it always just one for one, and is it always supposed to happen immediately? That's the, a lot of times it's the timing issue is, like the, is the struggle. Like the blind man. I mean, he wasn't born blind. Yeah. That, that, was, that was the question. Exactly. Happens. Exactly. We're, the, the disciples are trying to figure it out. <laughs> why, why is this man, why, or, you know, when the yeah, question comes, why? Yes, they want to know who sinned. And Jesus said it wasn't, it wasn't his sin, it wasn't his parents' sin, it was for God's glory. Now, does that mean there are not examples in Scripture where we know for a fact that a person sinned and immediately it said, and this happened, and we know because of the commentary of Scripture itself. We're not making an assumption. The commentary of Scripture itself tells us that the reason why that bad thing happened was because of that person's decision. Do we have examples of that? Yeah, we got lots of examples of that. The problem is we have examples of times when that didn't happen. (laughs) where God was merciful and gracious and patient. And then again, we have times where people do sinful things and, and, and it seems like their entire lifetime. Now, does that escape God? No. Is there ultimately a, a day of reaping? Yes, we know that. But it's trying to, in this sin-cursed world, to make those on-the-ground conclusions and decisions. And then here's the, here's the danger. 
when we think we've got it figured out, then we flip the formula, we kind of turn the thing on its head, and we start using it as a tool to manipulate God. So I'm going to do this good thing, and then I expect... And so here's the thing, and this is where he's already confronted this issue, that if you perpetually, in your mind, you perpetually are seeking God and good things, then prosperity will perpetually come, and you can avoid the adversity that Job went through or that other, other faithful believers went through. So, uh, we, 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 we just can't seem to make all the pieces fit together, right? I mean, we're trying, to, we're trying to connect the dots, but we have suffering and the evil in the world, and then we have the, the, God, the Word of God telling us that God is good and God is loving. We have, we have the abusive power of human government, and we have the omnipotence of God. We're just trying to, how do we get all that together? And Solomon reminds us that God has wired us for eternity. God is in charge. Yes, evil exists, but God is good. God is wise. God is powerful. And all of those things are compatible. They're all compatible. Stop, stop, stop worrying about it. They're all compatible. What's not compatible is if you limit your search to what is under the sun. If you somehow decide you're going to edit God. You're going to somehow or just leave God out altogether. That's when it's not compatible. That's when things don't really make sense. So Solomon has been chewing on these things. The, the constant forms of injustice, the wicked not facing immediate consequences for their sin, the righteous not immediately and perpetually being rewarded for their faithfulness. But he's not disillusioned and he's not disappointed by these realities. Verse 1, For I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will, whether, uh, it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. So, so what's, the, what's the secret? What's, what's the secret to the sanity of, 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 in this chaotic world? To know that God is in control of what happens to us. <laughs> That's where we find our sanity. And knowing that God is in control of what happens to us, whether it's the day of prosperity or the day of adversity. Because they are both under the sovereign control of God. To, to know that, that we and our activities are in God's hand. That's what he says. I, I thought about all these things and here's, here's, here's one of my conclusions. That man and his deeds are in the hand of God. <laughs> it was enough for Solomon. Hey, we're talking about the wisest man that ever lived. Okay? Other than Jesus Christ himself. He says, stop fretting. Stop panicking and know that your deeds and your life are in the hand of God. So formula living does not work. Formula living does not work. Solomon says, some will be loved, some will be admired, some will be praised. Others will be hated. Others will be despised. Others will be ignored. What's the difference? I don't know. You tell me. I could take two believers out of this room and follow you around, follow you around in, in, in your various activities this week. You both could be godly people, but you would be treated in different ways. Some of you, your godliness and just the context in which you're living, you would be admired, right? Some of you have family members. Some of you have coworkers. Some of you have friends that would say, I just love that person. Man, I just, it's just it's a great guy. It's just a great gal. Others, same godliness... They go into their context and they're ridiculed. They're made fun of. They don't get the promotion. I mean, they're not admired and esteemed. Why? 
your, your life is in the hand of God. <laughs> that's, that's how we bring it all together. We don't try it. We, we can't figure it out. It's unpredictable. But it's all in God's hand. It's all in his providence. And this is the refrain. Man cannot discover. He will not discover. He cannot know. I mean, we just keep seeing those statements over and over again. You cannot read the signs. You, you will never beat the system. You don't know what's going to happen this week. We, we, mentioned this last, we mentioned this last Sunday. I mean, you look back over the previous week and you say, I mean, did anything un, un, unexpected happen? <laughs> did anything happen in your life this last week that you didn't realize was going to happen when you started out? Absolutely. And what about this next week? Do you know everything exhaustively what's going to happen in your life this week? No. And Solomon just says, that's okay. That's okay. Life is incomprehensible, but God is in control, and he works in mysterious ways. And if you want to talk about something that has an element of mystery to it, then think about the subject of death, especially if you view death from that Old Testament, Old Testament mosaic perspective that would have been familiar to both Solomon and to his, his fellow Jews. That is, th- through the grid of the expectation that we've already mentioned in recent weeks, the expectation that God will bless the righteous and blast the wicked. And if you think about death in that light, it can seem quite confu- a quite confusing thing that the event that we most avoid and ignore and dislike in life happens as often to those who love God as those who don't. And this is where Solomon sort of draws our attention in verse 2. He says... It is the same for all. There is one fate, which is not a, not a great translation. It's really a word for event or happening. There is one, one event, one happening. Or I might even say there is one outcome for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the, for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As, as the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. He says, think about this. The righteous, the good, the clean, the truth teller suffers the same fate as the wicked, the unclean, the one who doesn't even acknowledge his sin. He doesn't even bring a sacrifice. (laughs) Just don't need to do that. The liars, the ones who make promises and break promises, which which is a mystery, right, to some extent, and a frustration for many. And Solomon doesn't try to necessarily solve that mystery right, right here, but he does want to teach us, uh, those of us who fear God, how to handle death. We can't, we can't change death, so there's no point in disputing with God over this, but we can learn to live wisely within God's plan. Nevertheless, there are certain frustrations regarding death, and Sol- Solomon lists some of those here in verse 3, he says, this, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives, and afterwards they go to the dead. By the way, where did the whole death thing come from? We've, we've, we've gone there. Where did, it, where did it come from? Right? All the way back to Genesis in fact, we said in some ways Ecclesiastes is an applicational commentary of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. If you kind of think about it that way. There's so many places where Solomon goes back to 
to the, to the uh, what life was like before sin and what happened as a consequence of sin in the garden. And so we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, where the Lord told uh, the Lord God told the man, he said there, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. In fact, it's, it's, it's actually the word for death, it's, it's kind of a, a put together. It's, it's muth tamuth, which means dying, you will die. For in the day that you eat from it, dying, you will die. And the rest is history, right? So this is an inescapable reality. We are all going to die. If you are born and live all the days of your life rejecting God, you're going to die. But if you're born and you become a Christian at age 10 and you live a Christ-honoring life, guess what? You're going to die. In fact, Solomon gives us in verse 3 a rather blunt but orthodox summary of life, right? We are born, we are depraved, we die. (laughs) In a nutshell, right? That's what he says. Our hearts are full of evil. Our hearts are full of insanity. But here's the frustration. Those whose hearts have been changed, they they die like the rest of them. Right? Some of us have changed, we have transformed hearts, right? That heart of stone has been taken out. We have a heart of flesh, but you know what? We're still going to die. And that's the frustration. Solomon goes on to discuss another frustration regarding death. That is the power of death to steal from you everything that you've done in life. The idea that death is a thief, and this leads us into our second point. The second thing you must do in order to enjoy uncertain life in light of certain death is that you must view death as a thief. You must view death as a thief. Verse 4, for whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. It's, you could say confidence. There is confidence. Confidence of what? Confidence that death awaits him. Confidence that he, he lives in a sin-cursed world. Confidence that there is more life to be lived. So for those who are, who are, are joined with all the living, there is confidence. Surely, he says, a, li- a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Of course, Solomon, we know, is not denying an afterlife. But the question is, what do the dead have left to enjoy under the sun? Nothing. Yes. Those who are dead... What do, they have, what do the dead have left to enjoy under the sun? Nothing. They have nothing. So Solomon says life under the sun is frustrating. It, it is dissatisfying. It is, it is tiresome. But being alive seems to be, from a certain perspective, better than death. In fact, we usually work pretty hard at trying to stay alive. Have you noticed that? <laughs> we do that, right? It's sort of... It's, it's like a, we're hardwired to do that, right? We try pr- pretty hard. We go through a lot, of, a lot of effort, spend a lot of energy to stay alive. He says here, surely a live dog is better than a dead lion, which sounds a little strange to us, but in, in the ancient Near Eastern 
a culture and context, a dog was viewed. It's not like our dog, Calvin. He's, man, he's awesome. He's a Chewini. But, you know, you think of dog, you're like, you know, we, we typically think of the, the dog kind of dogs that we had. But in that culture, this was the lowest form of, of animal life. Okay, these, got, these were just scavengers. They hung around all the garbage dumps and heaps. And so from an ancient Near Eastern context, the dog was sort of viewed as that lowest form. And then, of course, the lion, as it is much today, is sort of seen as, the, as the, the, the king of the beast. And so Solomon declares, it's better to be a live, think about what he's saying, it's better to, to be a live garbage scavenger than to be the king of the jungle but stuffed and mounted on a wall. That is to say, life is better than death, and normally we would choose the one over the other. It's as if Solomon is drawing a circle around, uh, and, and everything inside this, that circle is your life under the sun. And that is all that he's really concerned about in these verses. So he's not really thinking about, he's not really addressing the issue of what happens after we die. He's just saying, listen, there's a circle, and in that circle is everything that you experience and do in this life under the sun. And death comes along and takes everything away from you that is inside that circle. Now again, we know that Solomon anticipated a day of judgment, a day of reward, and that he knew all about that reality of life after death. But here, he's limiting his scope to life on this earth. And what he says is right. When you die, you no longer interact with this life. So death is a thief. And the, and, and the question you can think about is, what, but what does it take? What does death take away from you? If you're limiting your search here to what's under the sun, what does death take away from you? No more enjoyment of common grace. The birthday of your child. The family vacation, the more, no more influence on the people around you. No more godly counsel, no more marital romance, no more graduations. <laughs> Some of you are like, is that a bad thing? <clears throat> no more graduations, no more fruit of your labor, no more saving, no more striving for anything. Death takes all of that and more away. The enjoyment of every earthly activity ends at death. That is certain. We are confident of that fact, that fact. And knowing and living in light of the fact that death takes all of these things from us hits us once again at the point of our idolatry. Because when we say, I want Jesus to return soon, but I want to get married first. I, I, I want Jesus to come back soon, but I, I want to see the face of my first grandchild. Or I just want to get to this certain place in my career. Solomon says, God forbid. <laughs> don't, don't do that. And the very fact that death can take these things away from us reminds us that they were never intended to be the object of our trust or hope or the thing that we live for. So Solomon says, death is an incredibly frustrating reality. It's frustrating because both the righteous and the wicked die. It's frustrating because when you die, life comes to a screeching halt. Again, if we're looking at just under, life under the sun. And, and, and all that you have enjoyed, all that you have planned, all that you have been a part of is cut off. And there are, there are other frustrating things about death. But the question is, how will you handle the frustration of death? And there are several 
possible wrong ways to do that. One is to avoid it. Just avoid it altogether. I'm not going to think about it. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it. I may even refuse to go to, to, go to funerals. That would be one extreme, just avoiding it altogether. Another wrong response would be to become totally preoccupied with it, right? It's interesting. As a rule, the grandest archaeological relics of the Near East are what? Temples and tombs. Temples and tombs, right? A wrong view of God. If you think about this, a wrong view of God and a wrong view of death. In fact, in some ancient cultures, when you go back and study them, it seems as though they thought more about death than they did about life. And Solomon just says, both of those extremes are unhelpful. In chapter 7, he says that we shouldn't pretend that death doesn't exist. He says, in fact, they're very in a straightforward way. It's better to go to a house of mourning than, mourning than, than to go to the house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. But in chapter 9... Solomon warns against being preoccupied with death. He encourages us to view death as a thief, to remember what death takes from us. But then he gives us this final, final word of counsel. He says that we must savor life as a gift. Savor life as a gift. That is to say that while we are living under the sun, we should enjoy what God gives and only the person that fears God can really do that. Only the person who fears God can recognize the transient nature of life and the things of this life, but still enjoy life as a gift from, from God who made us for himself. So the unbeliever says this. The, unbeliever, the unbeliever says, if only I could have, and then you fill in the blank, if only I could have this, if only I could have that. The, the believer may get the this and may receive or experience the that. But he says to himself, well, I know that will never satisfy. But thank you, Lord. <laughs> right? I mean, it's like the, the unbeliever is always, if only I could get this, if only I could get that, because they think that the satisfaction comes in getting those things, which just complicates the futility and adds to it. The true believer may actually receive and experience the very things that unbelievers are pursuing and putting their hope and trust in. But the believer, when they receive them, they just say, I know that that's vanity to receive, to, to, to put my trust in that. But you know what? Thank you, God, for allowing me to do that. Thank you, God, for allowing me to have that. Verse 7, he says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. So again, he's speaking of, of a God-fearer who is godly and wise. He makes that reference back in verse 1. He tells us that. And, and, and in this verse, it's just a, it's a command. It's, it's go. That's what he's saying. In light of all this, go. It's a wake-up call. It, he's just saying there's no time to waste. Stop your complaining. Stop feeding your anger. Stop brooding over the problems in your life. Get over the anxiety. Walter Kaiser said this, Why should anyone who truly fears God have the joy of life stolen out from under him because of the unresolved perplexities still remaining in the partially disclosed plan of God? So it, it, it is partially disclosed. We don't understand the full plan of God. There's mystery to it, right? God, that, he, one minute we're in a, in a season of adversity and another minute we're in a season of, of prosperity. Why does God do that? Because he wants us to keep trusting him. 
and to not try to manipulate him and back him into a corner. And so he, he, he keeps us guessing kind of what's happened so that we just continue to trust in his sovereignty and in his providence. And Kaiser just says, just because we don't understand all the details of the plan, why should a true believer allow that mystery to rob him of the enjoyment of the gifts of God? Now, as in the, in the, as in the rest of Ecclesiastes... A God-centered and God-granted enjoyment of life is central to the fear of the Lord wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the center of all wisdom literature, whether it's Job or Proverbs or here in Ecclesiastes. So we're not talking about hedonism, the attitude that you only go around once and so party it up. I mean, you live it up. That's not what we're, we're dealing with because God is at the center of this. God is at the center. And God, he says even in the text, God has already approved your work. So this counsel isn't inconsistent with what Solomon has already said in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 2, verse 25, he said, For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him, without God? Chapter 3, verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all of his labor, it is the gift of God. Chapter 5, verse 19, Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Solomon is simply saying that death will end your interaction with this life under the sun. So with God at the center of your life, enjoy the life that God has given you. Life in a Genesis 3 world is hard. Death looms on the horizon. But rather than panic or run or be overly consumed with death, Solomon says, show that you trust God in regard to death and everything else by calmly enjoying the gifts that God has showered upon your life. So the question is, have you done that this week? Have you been thankful? Have you been thankful for the food that you've consumed? Have you been thankful for the music that you've listened to? Have you been thankful for the job that God's provided? Have you been thankful for your children? Have you been thankful for the fact that you, the promise that you are his child? <laughs> Have you been thankful for your spouse or thankful that God understands your desire for a spouse if you're not married? Are you thankful for his word? Are you thankful for your church? This is about a God, God-centered, Christ-centered thankfulness. Verse 8, he says, let your clothes be white all the time, which is a reference to celebration. You could, say, you could, say, you could think of it this way. Make the everyday things special. Celebrate the everyday things. Then he says, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, in Solomon's day, they didn't have shampoo. So they just poured on more oil. Okay, that sounds, that's, okay? That sounds kind of weird, but that, that's the reality of it. In fact, if you were suddenly transported back four or 500 years, the first thing you would notice is the smell. Yeah. Amen, right? No sewers, no deodorant, okay? Solomon essentially says, celebrate life and be refreshed. Verse 9, enjoy life with the woman, it actually is, is, there's not a definite article. So enjoy life with a woman whom you love. So he's not saying go out there and live it up with some woman. That's not what, what he's referring to here is he's saying that the wife, you're, the, 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 choose a wife, choose someone that you love. Or to say it this way, if you were thinking about someone that was single, you would say this would be a reference to a, a woman of your choosing if you're a single person. 
So this isn't like talking about immorality and just go out there. He's just saying enjoy life with a woman whom you love. Now, obviously, if you're married, that's, it's, the, it's the wife, right? He says enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. Which is interesting because he says, if you put it together and take out the part of the middle, it just says, enjoy life all the fleeting, all the days of your fleeting life. (laughs) It's like, okay. Enjoy life, or literally translated, enjoy life all the days of your vanity. Which God has, here it is though, which God has given you. Right? Which he's given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Solomon, think about it. He looks at the men, and you could, in principle, you could turn it around, but he looks at the men and says, Is life hard? Is, is work frustrating? One difficulty after another, and death lurking, who knows, right around the corner. How are you going to handle that? How are you going to handle it? Solomon's advice I want you to work hard, I want you to go home. I want you to take a shower. I want you to put on a clean shirt, eat supper, and enjoy life with the woman that God has given you. That's not bad counsel. Not bad counsel, right? Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol or the grave where you are going. Solomon's already warned about the danger of being a two-fisted worker. In verse chapter 4, verse 6, he said, One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. But with that in mind, God, is, God has only given you a small number of years on this earth to serve Him. What has God given you to do? Solomon says there's no point in being preoccupied with death, the fall, all the pain and the suffering of this life. It's all there. Okay, we're not denying that. It's all there. It's real. But whatever plans you have in this life will immediately come to a stop when you breathe your last. So take joy in your work. Enjoy it. Do it all out. I mean, go for it, right? While God gives you the opportunity to do it. Love your family. Raise your kids. Serve in the church. Do all that you do full, with full enthusiasm because that glorifies God. In other words... Redeem your short, meaningless existence and labor and pursue the glory of God with all your heart because you only have one shot at your short, vain existence. (laughs) In fact, one guy summarizes Ecclesiastes in this simple phrase, fear God and do what you want. Right? I mean, you got to get it in the right order, right? One person said this, um... Live life with no restraints. And that just sets us back. I'm mean, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Live life with no restraints, but then the second part, but live life with no regrets. So it's as if he's taking the principle of if you fear God and you know that you're going to stand before God and you're accountable to God and you're concerned about offending God and you're concerned about pleasing God, then if you get that piece right, then you're, you might be wondering, yeah, but what about these things in my life, all this like, all the, this, this stuff that just, I mean, think about how cyclical your life is. I mean, folks, we're not, it's not complicated. If you, took, if you take your home, your work, your, 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 your family, and your food, if you took those four areas, that is the bulk of your life, right? I mean, if we looked at, you, at, at the last week, 
The majority of your life revolves around those things, right? So what do we do with all that mundane stuff? Enjoy it. Enjoy it. But fear God, right? Fear God. That is the only way to enjoy this life. Depression begins with limiting your scope to this life. But despair and self-absorption are dispelled when you start focusing on God and fearing Him. So get after it. At some point, Jesus will return or you will die, which could be in the next 15 minutes. But the opportunity to glorify Him in this life will be gone. I mean, what sober wisdom, right? What wise counsel for dealing with the uncertainties of life and the certainty of death? Solomon walks us through this fallen world, but he doesn't panic and he doesn't scream out, the sky is falling, right? The sky is falling. He doesn't do that. He faces the problems head on. He grieves them. He hates them. He knows that the situation is ugly and empty, but he refuses to run toward the welcoming arms of the extreme skeptic or the cynic or the religious escapist or the hedonist. Rather, he believes that God has not left the mess, but remains here in it and with us. And in light of this, we start with what we have and we do this little bit each day with God. We start with what we know. It's Saturday morning. We wake up. Whatever choice we make for how we're going to use that day makes either our conscience restless or ridden with guilt or not. And Solomon helps us here. When it comes to tending our lot with our spouse or family, our work, our food, and our place, God has already told us that he approves of this use of time. When Adam and Eve loved each other and cultivated the garden and took time for meals and cared for the place with God, it was enough in God's eyes. But people say, but we're all going to die. Yes, now make a sandwich. Okay? But the sky is falling, I know. Let's go for a walk. But everything is meaningless, I know. Now go ahead and wash the clothes. But injustice is everywhere and the government is out of control, I know. Cut the grass. Spend time in prayer. Worship God because He hasn't quit. But it's so frustrating, I know. Now, plan your life, plan your, wife, your life work through your pain together. But death is coming, I know, so enjoy life with your wife. God is here. But life isn't fair, I know. The grief is terrible, but do your work passionately. God can meet you there. Life is hard in a Genesis 3 world, and death is going to steal everything from you, so enjoy God's gift, says the preacher. Prove that you trust God in death and life by often counting and calmly enjoying His blessings. Not with self-focus, but with wisdom and self-control. This will help you to minimize the frustration of the bumps and the scrapes and the bruises that come with living life outside the garden and this side of glory. And this will enable you to enjoy uncertain life in light of certain death. Okay? Enjoy God's gifts, right? Get rid of the karma. Expose the lie of that karma way of thinking. See death, see it, view death as a thief, and enjoy the gifts of God. Okay? All right, folks, thank you for your time.